Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! That was how ring announcer Michael Buffer would start WWF wrestling matches. He should have been on hand to start things off for Chris Wallace at the presidential debate. Donald Trump actually played himself as a character in WWF, fighting Vince McMahon, the owner of the massive pro wrestling empire. McMahon's wife now sits in Trump's cabinet after the couple donated millions of dollars to Trump's campaign. In 1954, writing about professional wrestling in Paris, philosopher Roland Barthes wrote that pro wrestling is light without shadow, emotion without reserve. And the master of that storytelling was Vince McMahon. He understood that millions of people want to scream in anger, cheer bad guys, and the more flawed the character, the more people cheered. He understood the era of the good guy was over and invented characters that were the embodiment of every value people had been taught not to hold. It was a wonderful release for people to express hatred without reserve. Trump, in front of 85,000 people, got to beat up McMahon and shave his hair off, because that's what it was. A winner gets to shave the other guy's hair off. He stood at the center of the ring, soaking in the wild cheers of the adoring crowd. And that's where he learned his politics. His unmitigated rage was on full display in the presidential debate on Tuesday night. He really thought he could win the debate with the kind of trash talk that works in front of a wrestling crowd. And perhaps it would have worked if he was just up against Biden. But at crucial moments, into the ring would run Chris Wallace, the Fox News journalist who would take Trump on in a way Biden never could. Wallace blunted Trump's attack and even asked a couple of real questions that Trump couldn't handle, especially when asked to denounce white supremacy. Only the manic megalomania of Trump could make the poverty of policy of Joe Biden look good. And what does this shit show, to quote a CNN pundit, who actually said that on air, say about the state of the American state? Why is the political system in such disarray? And what about the real issues that were supposed to be debated and were mostly ignored? Now joining us to try to make sense out of all of this is Megan Day. She's a staff writer at Jacobin and co-author of the book Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go from the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism. Gerald Horn holds the John Jay and Rebecca Moore Chair of History and African-American Studies at the University of Houston and author of many books, including The Counter-Revolution of 1776. And... Leo Panich is the Emeritus Distinguished Research Professor of Political Science at York University in Toronto and co-author of the Socialist Register. Thanks so much for joining me, all of you. Glad to be here, Paul. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having us. So, Gerald, uh, kick us off. What, what's your, what was your overall impression of what you heard and saw? Well, first of all, Mr. Trump's run-up to this debate was inconsistent with the requisites of the debate itself. What I mean is he has spent months talking about Sleepy Joe, how he's on the verge of being senile, how he's taking uh, performance enhancing drugs. And so what this suggested is that if Mr. Biden could string three sentences together without stumbling, he could emerge with a positive glow. Secondly, on a more profound level, we should pay careful and close attention 
to the article in The Atlantic by Barton Gelman, who you may recall did journalism on the Edward Snowden case, which suggests that the Republicans are prepping an electoral college coup. That is to say, in so-called red states, Republican Party-dominated states, where the vote may turn against Mr. Trump, speaking of Arizona, Florida, amongst others, that the legislature and or governor will ignore the popular will and send to the antiquated, archaic electoral college, which actually determines who's president, electors who will cast their electoral college ballots for Mr. Trump. I should also mention that I haven't seen any polling as a result of this train wreck of a debate, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, Mr. Trump's base did not, uh, that it it was unaffected uh, by his disgusting, despicable performance. Uh, It has remained steady uh, over the years. And it's at some point, I think progressive forces in the United States are going to have to take notice of the fact that for more than a half century across class lines, there has been a remarkable consistency in the Euro-American community voting for the right wing, including in 1991, when 55% of that community in Louisiana voted for a Nazi and a Klansman, David Duke, for governor of that particular state. And it took an astounding turnout from the black community from to keep a Nazi from becoming the governor of Louisiana. In that light, we should pay close attention to what Mr. Trump was trying to bait Mr. Biden into last night. That is to say, where is your support from the law enforcement community? Because if you look at this recent study by the Brennan Center at NYU at New York University, you'll note that of the 18,000 plus law enforcement police department units in this country, a significant percentage have been infiltrated, if not dominated, by white supremacists and white nationalists, which of course brings us to this moment when he asked the Proud Boys to stand by. He just as well could have mentioned the Michigan militia, which invaded the state capitol in Lansing a few months ago at the instigation of Mr. Trump, or the Boogaloo Boys, or the Patriot Prayer, which is involved in confrontations in the streets of Portland, Oregon, and others too numerous to mention. The GOP, the Republican Party, has become heavily dependent upon an ultra-right fringe to drag them across the finish line. And therefore, Mr. Trump is rather reluctant, shall we say, to denounce or even criticize him. Uh, I also think we should note that he has a material interest in terms of trying to pull off an electoral college coup, because in light of the revelations of the New York Times blockbuster story, talking about how he paid $750 in taxes in 2016-2017, maybe zero before that, that if he is not reelected, a pardon will only exempt him from federal charges. It will not prevent the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus Vance from going after him on tax fraud and tax evasion charges, not to mention the Attorney General of the State of New York and Albany, Letitia James, who happens to be a black woman who leans to the left. But overall, this debate in some ways reflects the decline of U.S. imperialism. It was shambolic. It was disgusting. And certainly it does not put the best foot forward for U.S. imperialism, not that that's possible in any case. 
That brings us to the nightmare scenario, which is that in order to help to prop up his declining campaign, except amongst his rock solid base, I should add, which is about 40 percent of the U.S. electorate, about 63 million strong, who when they go to polls, they don't have to necessarily deal with long lines and malfunctioning um, voting machines like the rest of us. In order to prop up his campaign, he may engage in the so-called wag the dog scenario, where he launches some sort of war against Iran, against Venezuela, or the big enchilada, speaking of the People's Republic of China. In any case, the issues got short shrift over the crosstalk and the insults and the threats and, and all the rest. But the saddest part of it all, perhaps, is that it's further evidence that the United States is splitting. That is to say that after the unrest of the 1960s, President Johnson appointed a commission headed by former Illinois Governor Otto Kerner that came to the conclusion the United States was becoming two societies, separate but unequal, black and white. Well, uh, we've morphed beyond that, uh, sadly enough. What I mean is that it's becoming a de facto neo-apartheid society where a minority that represents and resembles the original settlers in this settler colonial project are desperately trying to hold on against the rest of us. Megan, what are your thoughts? Well, I appreciate that, Gerald, and I think a lot of that is quite right. I want to go through some of the uh, points of the, of the debate that I think are the most interesting. The first thing that really jumped out at me is that Trump was very adept at hitting Joe Biden from both sides of an issue in a way that we would consider to be logically or politically inconsistent or incoherent, but it didn't quite matter because the purpose wasn't necessarily to make a particular case against Biden. It was simply to make him look weak, um, to trigger viewers' emotions, and so on. So an example of this is when uh, Trump hit Joe Biden for being in favor of socialized medicine, which we, of course, having gone through the primary together, we all know that that's absolutely not true. And then Trump immediately switched after that to then talking about how he, Trump, was the one who was going to battle big pharma, he was going to lower the price of insulin, and so on. So you could see there's some sort of inconsistency there, where he's essentially saying that Joe Biden has drank the Bernie Sanders Kool-Aid and forcing Joe Biden to then disavow the left, which Joe Biden did, which was extremely disappointing, though not surprising. And then he immediately, once that happened, he actually switched sides of the position and started uh, imitating Bernie Sanders himself, uh, even though not in you know plan or program, but in rhetoric, talking about big pharma and insulin costs and so on. And this same dynamic played out later on in the debate where uh, Donald Trump accused Joe Biden of being soft on crime over and over. He said, you know, you won't say the words law and order because you're afraid that the radical left is going to jump down your throat if you talk about being tough on crime. And that's why Democrat cities are burning. And that's why we have lawlessness in the streets. I don't know if you all are familiar with a Trump ad that he ran called uh, Break In, which is an, it shows an elderly white woman calling 911 and there's nobody on the other line. The implication being that Joe Biden has defunded, entirely defunded the police departments and there's no one to help her, right? So he just kind of did that during, during the debate. But then 
almost immediately thereafter, he switched and started talking when they when they went onto the topic of race and racial inequality. Trump switched and started talking about how Joe Biden authored the 1994 crime bill that uh, intensified mass incarceration in this country, especially harming black communities, which as obviously has a basis in reality. But it's the complete opposite position, whereas first Joe Biden was soft on crime. Now Joe Biden has been to, quote unquote, tough on crime. And Joe Biden, perhaps, I think if he had if he were a more adept debater, I think he maybe could have picked up on some of the logical inconsistencies in Trump's angle of attack. Instead, I was disappointed to see Biden essentially following Trump's lead. So Trump would say something and then Biden would try to clarify that, in fact, that's not at all what he thinks about the matter. And then Trump would say the opposite. And Biden would then again try to clarify that that's not at all what he thinks. Whereas I think maybe a stronger debater would have said, which side do you really come down on the issue? Here's here's my here's my position on the issue. Now, we on the left wouldn't necessarily have agreed with Joe Biden's explication of his actual position on these issues on health care and criminal justice, for example, but at least it would have been a display of uh, force and strength and coherence. Um, unfortunately, that didn't happen. So another couple things that I want to point out about the debate that I thought were really interesting was I thought Biden lost this exchange about the so-called manifesto, the Bernie Sanders manifesto. Uh, Donald Trump said, accused him of agreeing with Bernie Sanders on a variety of issues, having co-authored this manifesto. Those of us who are following that know that Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden did sit down, progressives and party establishment figures did sit down to hammer some stuff out. We didn't expect it to be very fruitful. Ultimately, it wasn't that fruitful. They put together a document. Joe Biden has already said that he doesn't really respect the document very much. So in any case, Joe Biden or Donald Trump seems to have known that this would be a, an easy way to trap Joe Biden, he said, you know, Joe, you agree with Bernie Sanders. You wrote this manifesto together. And then Joe Biden responded by saying, you know, it's not true. Again, he's following Trump's lead here. And he says, this is not true. The fact of the matter is that I beat Bernie Sanders and there is no manifesto. And I am the Democratic Party now. And Trump just responded and he said, you just lost the left. It was like Trump had la had laid a trap for Joe Biden and Joe Biden had walked into it. And then Trump actually, because he's so, you know, he his his performance is so strange um, and he actually verbalizes thoughts that are running through his head at the moment. He simply verbalized, you know, you you fell for the trap that I laid for you. And I thought that was true. And I thought that Biden lost that exchange. That said, immediately after that, things started to look up for Biden because they started talking about the coronavirus response. And I thought Trump did a horrible job trying to I was trying to have unbiased eyes when I was watching this. I couldn't see how very many people who were at, at all concerned about coronavirus. This is not, you know, not to count the sort of, I would say maybe 20 or 30 percent of the American populace who's not concerned at all because for partisan reasons, they've decided that it's not a real issue. Um, but anyone who actually is afraid of getting coronavirus or who has been uh, affected by the e economic shutdown, but also understands the, the reasons for the shutdown and understands the sort of logic of the pandemic would have come away from that exchange feeling that Donald Trump had failed to explain why his response was actually appropriate. Joe Biden managed to marshal plenty of uh, numbers, stats, figures, and it painted a pretty bleak picture for Donald Trump. And then I want to highlight another exchange 
that I thought Biden lost, unfortunately. You know, Donald Trump said <laughs> Donald Trump's taxes were always going to be a key feature of this debate. When they were brought up, Trump said something that's entirely true. He said, I'm just doing what rich people do. He said, before I came into government office, I was a private developer. I was a private business person and I was operating by the rules and that's what rich people do. And on, pre on previous occasions, he said, yeah, I don't pay a ton of taxes. That's because I'm smart. Right. I know how to work. The, I know how to work the system. He's not doing anything illegal. He's just sort of jumping through the loopholes that have already been set up for people like him to jump through. And and uh, he essentially said, Joe Biden, you you helped write the tax code that then I then followed in order to not pay very, very high taxes, though. Oddly, Trump was also kind of trying to deny to deny that he had paid low taxes as well. But we'll leave that to the side for a second. But that, that was actually a very effective point um, because it is true. Joe Biden has been, you know, one of uh, he's been a part of this sort of bipartisan um, uh, effort to impose austerity, to reduce taxes, to take aim at entitlements and so on. I mean, he's a proud third way Democrat. This has been his political project for the better part of uh, 50 years. And so when Donald Trump said you wrote those those laws that I then followed, that was very effective. And Joe Biden didn't really have a good answer for that. Um, he said, you know, I'm going to pass new laws and we're going to close all these loopholes. And Trump said, why didn't you do that, you know, 25, 20 years ago? And Joe Biden said, because you weren't president screwing everything up, which is frankly an awful answer because Donald Trump is not the only wealthy person in the country. So I think for anyone who's attentive to or, or in tune with at least some of the messages that Bernie Sanders was putting forward in the primary about wealthy people taking advantage of the tax code, about upward redistribution of wealth, they would see that in that moment, Joe Biden revealed himself to only care about fixing that those problems, those problems of upward wealth redistribution, simply because Donald Trump is the political enemy at this particular moment. I thought that revealed a lot, and I think it went poor for Biden. And then, of course, the last thing I want to touch on is something that Gerald already touched on, rightly so. I think it was the big story of the evening. I actually stayed up late and hammered out an article about it last night, which is uh, when Donald Trump, on two occasions during, during the debate, seemed to endorse right-wing violence. So he was asked very pointedly by moderator Chris Wallace, will you denounce white supremacy? Will you, will you denounce white supremacists and armed right-wing militias? Uh, he bumbled his way through that exchange at first. He said, I would absolutely be willing to do that. Of course, he did not follow through on that. He then immediately began talking about how actually Antifa is responsible for all the violence and it's the left that's responsible and not the right. So Wallace pressed him and said, if you're willing to do that, will you do it right now? And uh, Biden sort of jumped in on this and said, yeah, do it. Like, do it, Trump, do it. And Trump was like, who do you want me to who do you want me to, to condemn? Right. And then Chris Wallace said, what about white national white nationalists or white supremacists? And Joe Biden helpfully offered up the name of a, an, a fascist organization in the United States called the Proud Boys that uh, has they are self-described Western chauvinists. I think that they would actually not describe themselves as white supremacists per se, but they're definitely fascists. And Joe Biden, or rather Donald Trump, instead of uh, denouncing the Proud Boys, he told them to stand back and stand by. It's very, it was very odd phrasing. It sort of seemed to indicate that it's a military term, stand by. It means wait at the ready for further command. And it's, in in that moment, Donald Trump seemed to almost lay claim to this 
uh, right wing street militia force or, or street fighting force that is responsible already for a lot of political violence and to ask them to stand down and to stand by and sort of await further command. Now, I don't know if Donald Trump necessarily meant to communicate that. A lot of times he just produces phrases from his head and doesn't think through them. This was obviously unscripted. However, the Proud Boys themselves took it as a sign of acknowledgement and affirmation and a call to arms. And immediately on a platform called Telegram, which is where a lot of alt-right figures congregate, it actually has a nickname Terrorgram because some sections of the site are where right-wingers congregate to actually you know, hatch terror plots, whether or not they're joking or not is a, is a, is up for debate. Um, I think a lot of times jokes shade into not jokes and then turn into real violence. So on, on telegram, the proud boys posted their logo with the words stand by or stand back and stand by, which is what Donald Trump had, had said to them immediately. So if Donald Trump didn't mean to imply what he did, he would need to clarify it right now because everyone has received the message loud and clear on all sides of the aisle otherwise. And then later on in the debate, Trump started to, Trump was asked by Wallace, essentially, will you pledge to encourage your supporters to refrain from what he called civil unrest or to stay calm in the event that we don't know who the winner is going to be on election day, which we almost certainly will not, right? Uh, And Trump essentially answered, no, I will not do that because there's a vast conspiracy to manipulate ballots. And then he went off into this rambling answer about, um, you know, this conspiracy to throw away Trump ballots. They're selling them. They're throwing in the river. Um, and and he said, if the election is unfair, then I'm uh, more or less under no obligation to ask my supporters to not do something about it, was the answer that he gave. And then, of course, he explained why the election was not already not fair, which seemed to indicate support for right-wing political violence in the event of an uncertain result or a Trump loss in November, which I think we should find extraordinarily concerning, especially in light of the fact that Donald Trump has started to, the campaign has started to wage a multi-million dollar effort to recruit about 50,000 Trump supporters to be what they're calling poll watchers, um, to show up at the polls and to sort of guard against voter fraud, this specter of voter fraud. But a lot of voting rights activists are very concerned that, in fact, what's going to happen is 50,000 very hardcore Trump supporters who already believe his story about va- a vast conspiracy of ballot manipulation are going to show up to the polls essentially to intimidate anyone that they come across who seems like they might have non-Trump or anti-Trump views, which is essentially going to result in voter suppression and possibly political violence, which, again, to underscore, is something that Trump seems to endorse as long as it's on his behalf and, and in his name. So those are my those are the, the things that I wanted to touch on from the, the debate that I found most interesting. Overall, I would say uh, not a very educational uh, debate. I, I think that we mostly knew all of this stuff, but certainly a debate with some very disturbing moments. Thanks, Megan. Leo, your thoughts? Well, the first thing I'd like to do is express my sympathy uh, to Megan and Gerald and other Americans on the left uh, for having to live through this. Uh, what we witnessed last night was uh, a so-called debate between someone who is a cross between J.P. Barnum uh, of Barnum and Bailey and Mussolini, who is the real comparison uh, to be made here with Trump and not Hitler. Uh, and he was standing up against, it seemed, watching it, the ghost of Christmas past. Um, and, and it was an appalling spectacle uh, in which I thought Biden uh, uh, did not rise to the occasion 
Uh, and that poses a very difficult question when, as Megan so astutely uh, was commenting, when Trump revealed his strategy, which was to try to show that he had lost the left, that he couldn't engage the enthusiasm of the left uh, to secure Trump's defeat. Uh, this is a significant question. And I couldn't help but keep thinking as I was watching this, what uh, the debate would have looked like, and I put the debate in, question, in quotation marks, uh, because uh, if, if it had been Bernie, uh, would the dumbing down of discourse that Trump is engaged in, the dumbing down of political discourse, which Umberto Eco, who grew up under Mussolini, described as the ur-characteristic of fascism uh, in the Italian sense, uh, would Bernie have been able to salvage some rationality, some substance out of this? I don't think Biden did, and that worries me a great deal, especially in the context of it being so important that people swallow hard, uh, engage in a popular front tactic for the moment in the election, uh, and, and get people out to vote against Trump. And I'd, I'd like to hear from Gerald and Megan what they think the effect will be. Um, but my great fear is uh, that that this is all, he's being very open uh, about uh, not adhering to the outcome of the election, uh, and uh, he's preparing people for that. Uh, and as Megan said, for his poll watchers, which was something that Netanyahu did in order to discourage Arab voters, uh, Israeli Arab voters, in the last series of Israeli elections. Um, and this it will likely lead uh, to the kind of punch-ups, even on election day, and then when he refuses to accept the outcome afterwards, that will make the demonstrations in the last few months uh, look like a Tea Party. And I don't mean the Boston Tea Party. Uh, and in that case, uh, perhaps the most frightening thing Trump said uh, was that if it was uh, he was able to unleash his repressive apparatus uh, in Portland, the whole thing, whole thing would be solved in half an hour. Uh, and, and so clearly what one needs to take away from this, uh, in combination with uh, the dumbing down of political discourse, for which America has never been very noted, and perhaps the one thing one can say in favor of Obama was that he did raise the level of political discourse, uh, certainly in comparison with Bush uh, and even Clinton. Uh, you know, is, is, you know, will we see, uh, the type of undisciplined protest, uh, that will give an excuse for, uh, the unleashing of the repressive apparatus, uh, of the kind that he already sent into a number of states, uh, but perhaps beyond that, uh, this is, uh, the great danger and out of which will come, of course the closing of political space, not just the maiming and jailing of protesters, uh, but the closing of political space uh, that would follow uh, people uh, like Megan or, or uh, Gerald uh, saying things in support of the protesters. Uh, this is very frightening in my view. Uh, uh, we've seen nothing like it. Um, and, and what it shows, uh, since you 
indicated you wanted me to speak to this, Paul, uh, is once again uh, that the main contradictions in global capitalism today are not between states. It's not China's threat to the American empire as a rising new capitalist power that is destabilizing global capitalism. It is contradictions within states. Uh, uh, you know, whether it's the contradictions that led to Brexit in the UK uh, or uh, what we see in the United States today. Um, and, and that is at the core of uh, what this may mean in terms of the instability uh, of all of this for global capitalism. Although our concern needs to be uh, how do we turn this in a way that produces a unified left response that goes beyond the mere uh, united front of getting uh, Trump out. Um, if you could give me one, one more uh, thing to say, as a Canadian watching this, I couldn't help but recall a passage I uh, remembered from Sinclair Lewis's It Can't Happen Here, his tremendous novel on the rise of fascism in the United States, the election of a right-wing senator, and then his replacement uh, by President Haig, who was Secretary of War, who introduces an explicit fascist regime, the result of which is that the hero in the novel, the journalist, escapes a concentration camp and comes to Canada. And I'll just read you these few sentences. When he arrived in Canada, he expected that everyone would thrill to his tale of imprisonment, torture, and escape. But he found the 10,000 spirited tellers of woe had come before him, and that the Canadians, however attentive and generous hosts they might be, were actively sick of pumping up new sympathy. They felt that their quota of martyrs was completely filled, and as to the exiles who came in penniless, and that was the majority of them, of course, the Canadians became distinctly weary of depriving their own families on behalf of unknown refugees, and they couldn't even keep up forever a gratification in the presence of celebrated American authors, politicians, and scientists when they became as common here as mosquitoes. Uh, I keep hearing from Americans that uh, they want to come to Canada if Trump is reelected. I keep jokingly saying we're going to build a wall and make them pay for it. Uh, but this is a very serious question, uh, uh, which I don't want to make light of in, in the wake of what happened last night. Uh, Gerald, let me pick up on Leo's question then. Uh, certainly much of the left, uh, I don't know in terms of actual numbers, but uh, certainly in terms of influence and being vocal, uh, w was less than less than less enthusiastic about Biden before this debate. And as Megan said, uh, he, he really made a point of distancing himself from the left. In fact, at one point, Trump actually says, I don't know what to call you. Do I actually call you left? Because he, he, as Megan said, he, he was trying to have it both ways with what to call Biden. Uh, but Gerald, what does this mean in terms of developing a, a broad front against Trump? Uh, is this the debate and the way Biden's positioning himself? Is is he lo losing the left or is the left going to see past Biden? Well, I really don't think so, because I think that the fascist threat is focusing and concentrating the mind, as is often said, when you're facing execution in the morning. The problem in the United States, amongst others, is that 
in order to effectuate this broad front, what you would need to do is focus like a laser beam on the communities that tend to vote against the right by nine to one, speaking of black Milwaukee, black Detroit, black Philadelphia, et cetera. And of course, try to speak to their issues, which Mr. Biden has done intermittently. The problem is that oftentimes when you try to address black issues, the block that votes for the right in Dixie by a rate of nine to one and nationally by a rate of 57 to 43, oftentimes feels that that is preferential treatment to the victims of bias and they react very negatively to it. History clearly shows that when you have steps, no matter how halting, towards some sort of reform with regard to what has been called the national question, for example, the overthrow of slavery in 1865, followed by Reconstruction and an attempt to effectuate voting rights, and then the rise of the Ku Klux Klan, U.S. apartheid, etc., oftentimes these measures of reform are greeted rather violently by a counter-reform, a counter-revolution. And what concerns me is that in in the wake of the protests post-May 25th, 2020, over the lynching on camera of George Floyd, that there will be a revolt at the ballot box. That is to say, there will be a hype turnout by that Euro-American bloc that votes across class lines that obviously takes more seriously the white supremacist origins of the United States of America, more so than many of our friends on the left, for example, who tend to have a a rather naive view and rather Pollyanna-like view of the origins of this settler state, which reminds me that, interestingly enough, a number of mainstream journalists have been calling me lately uh, to discuss issues concerning the possibility of the vanquished if Mr. Trump pulls off an electoral coup, appealing to international bodies for assistance. For example, like the person who says that she is now the actual leader of Belarus. Uh, That is to say, going to the United Nations, the Organization of American States, uh, etc. And what what I find striking about that is, is one more example of how some of these mainstream forces in some ways are more advanced than folks on the left. They're taking this threat very seriously and are willing to revise the otherwise rosy view of the United States, which I would like to see emulated with regard to the so-called poll watchers. You saw what they have in store when you uh, witnessed early voting in Virginia just a few days ago when they were engaged in a concerted uh, campaign of harassment of those who were lining up to vote, even though I'm not sure how if they realized what these, who these people were going to vote for. I assume they assume that if you're voting early, you must be voting against Trump. And with regard to ripping off the blinders and, and trying to look at this country the way it is, as opposed to some sort of naive view, we really need to move away from this idea that these folks would vote differently, but for Fox News and Rush Limbaugh. Because the bloc that votes against Mr. Trump and the GOP 9 to 1, Fox News is part of their cable package. On their AM radios, they have Rush Limbaugh, and they don't seem to be affected by it. So we really need deeper explanations. People need to put on their thinking caps. Otherwise, we'll have a lot of time to discuss this in the concentration camps in Yankee Stadium.
Hagen, uh, same question. Uh, the, you talked about Biden distancing himself from the left. And as you said, Trump says you just lost, lost the left. Well, did he? I don't think so in reality, because if you looked, for example, in 2016 at the actual percentage of Bernie Sanders primary voters who then went on to vote for Hillary Clinton in the general election, that number was, in fact, higher than the percentage of, in 2008, Hillary Clinton primary voters who went on to vote for Barack Obama in the general election. So I think that if you're concerned about a low turnout or a, a, the sort of like resentful protest vote from the wing of the party that loses the primary, you actually have more of a problem with the centrist Democrats in that regard, because they tend to actually vote Republican, whereas um, leftists have nowhere else to go. They can either stay home or not. And a lot of leftists, a lot of people who supported Bernie Sanders are actually very politically engaged, which means that staying home doesn't feel like an appropriate option for them. So there's going to be a lot of clothespin votes for Joe Biden on the left. I think the numbers will bear this out. I feel pretty confident about this. I see no reason to believe otherwise. You know, you sometimes hear conversation, discourse about, um, you know, uh, expressing sort of criticism or disappointment disappointment in Joe Biden. I've certainly done that. I mean, I'm doing it, you know, I'm still doing it. I don't see any reason to stop criticizing Joe Biden between now and November, but it's certainly a matter of emphasis um, and trying to figure out how to message effectively to the left that we do need to, uh, especially in battleground states, show up to vote for Joe Biden. There's a season for everything and um, there will be a season for protesting Joe Biden and uh, his attempts to sort of back away from the, the promise that he made to the left, which I'm sure he will do immediately upon entering office if he is to win. Um, so I, I think that in order to make this case to the left, and I don't, like I said, I don't think it's it's urgent. I think that if you're concerned about uh, our electoral prospects in this election, the place to look is, is disaffected black voters in um, places like Milwaukee, as was just mentioned, or, um, you know, the sort of uh, Obama to Trump converts in the Rust Belt, uh, not not the people who voted for Bernie Sanders who might go on Twitter and criticize Joe Biden. But I do think that there's a conversation to have on the left about this that I think is really important. And I think that it starts with Trump's identification of Antifa as the number one threat facing the United States. And a lot of people on the left don't identify as Antifa. You know, I'm identified as a, so a socialist. I certainly identify as an anti-fascist, but Antifa tends to refer to people who are anarchists, who are black bloc, who participate in street protests in a particular way, using particular tactics. And because I don't, I don't go around calling myself Antifa. However, those of us on the left, even if we don't call ourselves Antifa, need to be very alarmed by Donald Trump's identification of Antifa as the number one threat facing the United States, because what is actually happening is that he's trial ballooning a third red scare. I know that sounds hyperbolic, but when you really break it down, it's not hyperbolic at all. Um, you would expect that after the third resurgence of socialism in the United States, you would see a third red scare. Um, I think that that's probably in the cards. Um, and I think that it's just taking an unusual form right now because I think that socialism has the term socialism has lost quite a bit of its toxicity in, in large part due to Bernie Sanders' two primary campaigns. And so Donald Trump is casting about for another boogeyman that can sort of fill the, the space that socialism might fill. 
And furthermore, it should be noted that immigrants and terrorists were uh, uh, the boogeymen of, of yore, of the last you know two decades. But th- that seems to have lost its cachet. I think maybe that people, it's just kind of played out. It seems a bit cliche, and it's not really pulling on, it's not triggering the emotions of people in Trump's base. Uh, I think that Antifa is right now. And furthermore, I would say that this summer, something very concerning has started to happen, which is that the right has started to use the term Marxist more than it ever has in my entire lifetime. I've actually rarely even heard the right use the term Marxist. When I came to Marxism as a Marxist myself, that term was introduced to me by the left and not as something scary, maybe as something passe, maybe as something that we've grown out of, but not as a a sort of looming threat. So this is a new development. And I think it's one that we really have to keep an eye on because when the right talks about Marxism, they don't actually mean the, the, the writings and the ideas of Marx and Engels. They're actually using it in the sense of the term cultural Marxism, which has been, which has emerged from something called the intellectual dark web. It's a, it's a neo-reactionary intellectual current on the right that has this term cultural Marxism that they use to refer to enforced egalitarianism, which cuts against their ideas of the natural hierarchies between people. Um, they have a sort of like social Darwinist or social free market approach to letting people dominate each other. Um, and that's how that's how society is, is going to function best, is if you let dominant people fill dominant roles. Um, and they perceive any attempts to intervene or correct against that, including, for example, anti-racism or feminism, they call that cultural Marxism, as in cultural egalitarianism. That's where the use of the term Marxism is coming from in the right wing. Um, so you Donald Trump has started talking about Marxism. All of the right Right-wing figures, including right-wing Congress people, have started talking about Marxism this summer. You can imagine, as an open Marxist who writes for an American socialist magazine, the largest American socialist magazine, I find this quite concerning um, because we weren't talking about this seven, eight months ago on the national stage. And Donald Trump is explicitly tying Marxism to Antifa. Um, we actually on the left are able to draw out distinctions and differences between different currents on the left, but they are lumping them all together and they're painting them all with this anti-communist brush, um, linking linking everyone on the left to a, a sort of legacy of terror and authoritarianism uh, and, and sort of portraying the left in general, including Black Lives Matter. So Black Lives Matter, Antifa and something called Marxists are, and even Democrats are lumped into this, are all sort of one pulsating mass of potential authoritarianism that must be crushed in order to preserve the nation. And I think that we have to be very careful about that and we can't be naive about that. That is a major threat to us. And if we are able to get Trump out of office, then we can neutralize that threat somewhat, which is very important because we want, as a matter of strategy, to be able to open up as much political space as possible for us to maneuver in. And an incipient third red scare is not a fruitful backdrop for the kinds of class struggle and class political organizing that we know that we're going to need to do in order to actually transform this country into a habitable one. When I said in my opening that uh, a teacher of Trump's politics was Vince McMahon, uh, another one of his teachers was Roy Cohn, who was the lawyer for Joe McCarthy and later became an actual advisor for Trump. Uh, In fact, I've got a piece on the website now how McCarthyism was a model for Trumpism. And and people usually associate McCarthy with the Hollywood 10 and the tax of that sort. But if I understand it correctly, that actually wasn't, that was more the House of Un-American Activities Committee. McCarthy's attack was on the left, especially the left in the trade unions, and but also left 
individuals in government. Uh, but yeah, for, for those on the left who who's, uh, want to uh, sort of uh, be standoffish about this election and not consider the defeat of Trump a critical uh, step towards creating a more favorable uh, field for battle, as, as you just said, Megan, um, uh, it's beyond naive. Uh, it's like they don't even believe their own analysis, their own analysis, because some of that section of the left that go on and on about how fascist the United States is, uh, it seems like they don't believe it because it, they're going to be the target along with the rest of the left. Uh, Leo, let me ask you a sort of different question. Um, the the in the major capitalist countries, uh, you know, you know, Germany, Russia, I, I would include China more or less in that, uh, maybe a little different, but still, uh, most of the major uh, big capitalist countries are not in such political disarray. I mean, they have their problems and crises and so on, but not, not the, a, a commentator on CNN called it this too, not the batshit craziness one seeing in American politics. Maybe the closest is Boris Johnson in the UK. And even there, there was a strong American influence that helped create the, the whole conditions for the rise of Boris Johnson. Uh, why? Why is the United States, uh, even, even in terms of how they're dealing with the pandemic, it's, it's so more irrational than most of the other countries, I mean, other than maybe like a Brazil or something? Well, uh, the, we are seeing this in, in other countries, uh, a, a collapse of the center-left and the center-right political parties um, uh, where you have proportional representation. Uh, this is, was reflected, of course, in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, where you don't have proportional representation uh, in insurgencies within those parties, from the Tea Party in the case of the Republicans uh, and, and uh, the Sanders insurgency inside the Democratic Party. There is an instability uh, in uh, the political institutions uh, of advanced capitalism, and that political instability uh, is reflected as well in the way in which a xenophobic nationalism has rushed in to occupy the space of those collapse of centrist institutions, uh, partly uh, appealing in, in good part to the working class in nationalist patriotic terms uh, at a time when the natural representatives of the working class politically uh, were burdened by their own embrace of neoliberalism. Uh, and, and as with the Democratic Party, their lack of authenticity any longer uh, when they speak to defending the working class. Uh, in that sense, the most astonishing thing that Biden said, having been a proponent, uh, as Megan said, of third-way politics uh, through uh, the Clinton era, uh, so manifestly was that the first thing he would do would be to require the American state to uh, be purchasing, only purchasing uh, goods produced inside the United States. This is something that the American state has worked very, very hard uh, at getting other states not to do and to declare that as not consistent with free trade treaties. Um, so this is turning the world on, on its head. Now, in terms of the long tradition of American exceptionalism, in the other sense, it is the absence of a mass working class party 
which goes all the way back to the 1896 election, the exclusion of not only blacks from uh, the voting system effectively, but also a good many new immigrants who were the basis of uh, uh, the formation of working class socialist uh, organizations around that time and up to World War I. Uh, it has to do uh, with uh, a certain dumbing down of American political discourse, uh, which we know goes back a very, very long time uh, to the know-nothings of the 1840s. Uh, it has to do with, as Marx put it uh, very astutely, that it, America was the first state to have freedom of religion, uh, but it certainly did not have freedom from religion. Uh, and for a very long time in the 20th century, the only really mass political organizations uh, were the evangelical churches. Um, uh, and we're seeing the effect of that uh, to some extent. Uh, so, uh, sure, this, you know, the, the extremity of it uh, in the form it takes from Trump. And it's very interesting that Trump is really the first president who is a capitalist. There was never anyone uh, who had been a capitalist. And what was he created by? He was created by reality television uh, and a great many working people siding with him when he so crudely uh, said, he, you're fired. Um, you know, you're seeing here the effects of uh, the political culture of the American dream. Uh, whereby uh, those uh, who couldn't conceivably uh, succeed at not having very, been very wise in the selection of their parents uh, somehow hope they're going to win the lottery uh, and emulate uh, the type of capitalist, the type of businessman uh, who is a shyster in, in the hope that that's the way they can get to success. Um, uh, the Republican Party has you know, become the location of that. Uh, in Florida at the time of the uh, mortgage meltdown. Um, and one needs to remember that Clinton and uh, pres his presidency took great credit for the use of derivatives uh, to help black people uh, buy mortgages. Um, uh, they saw that as a way of solving uh, the endemic racism of the American housing system. Uh, well, you know, in Florida, uh, almost everybody, uh, as, as the inquiries done after 2008 showed, who were selling mortgages were people who had been convicted of financial fraud. Um, and when you remember what, you know, the base of the local party, local Republican parties is everywhere, um, you know, the base of it starts in, in real estate, uh, amongst real estate developers and brokers, et cetera. Um, so, yes, there are specific uh, explanations that need to be brought up here. But I would like to raise something else that Megan was pointing to, which is uh, how significant and important uh, was the short passage from Occupy with its own crude but very necessary class map of 99 to 1 to the Sanders candidacy, the growth of the DSA, from being, you know, a few thousand people uh, in with an average age of the late 60s to what it is today of 60,000 people with an average age of under 30. Uh, the entry of socialism into the discourse. Jacobin has just celebrated its 10th anniversary and, as Megan says, is the largest socialist magazine in the country now, you know, almost anywhere these days. 
um, explicitly socialist of a non-sectarian kind. Uh, uh, it, it, this is a remarkable development. And I'd like to hear from Megan and Gerald. I, I mean, I, I realize that this is fantasy. How that debate would have gone last night if Bernie had been there. Uh, what could Bernie have done uh, to have uh, uh, prevented the further dumbing down of discourse uh, that occurred last night? Um, uh, would he have been successful? Um, and, and what effect would that have on American political culture? And I'd like to ask a further question. Uh, which seems to me very, very important. Um, it, it has been the case through the 20th century that the strongest expressions of the left have come in the form of social movements, which then fade away uh, at every election. Uh, and you're faced with this appalling alternative um, between the Democrats and Republicans, more appalling now than ever, of course. Um, uh, you know, but one has to ask whether the protest movements, which have reignited uh, this year so impressively and have been so biracial in their composition, whether they will have the discipline uh, in the current critical moment uh, to unify in such a way that the protests be of a kind that does not invite uh, the kind of repression that Trump is pointing to. And especially I'd like to ask whether the discourse of white supremacy, which is partly intended, of course, and rightly so, uh, to remind people of uh, the uh, history that the United States was built on as a faux democratic capitalist society, whether that discourse of right white supremacy does not undermine the ability to create the popular front we need because people resent, people re I fear, especially working class uh, uh, communities, um, uh, resent being guilted by this. Of course, they shouldn't, but they do. Uh, and, and, and we face, I do think we have to face in a very different context than 1932 in Germany, um, whether the divisions that exist around this question of class versus race, um, which, which should not be divisive since it is a racialized capitalism, uh, whether that is not going to replicate the divisions between the social democrats and the communists in 1932. Uh, these are serious questions, which it isn't a matter of, of dealing with morally. Uh, it's also a matter of dealing with tactically uh, in the weeks to come. Gerald, go ahead. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, should we stop talking about white supremacy? Should we stop talking about the fact that black preschoolers are more likely to be suspended from school than other preschoolers? There was a letter in the New York Times that suggested that perhaps we'll move to saying that black infants are more likely to cry louder than other infants. See, the problem is really reframing the history of the settler colonial state, a term curiously and conspicuously absent from a lot of left-wing discourses, and recognize that this so-called enlightenment project 
was racially flawed from its inception. The vaunted Bill of Rights did not apply to a significant percentage of the population. There was no Second Amendment right for enslaved Africans, for example. If there had been, as the Manhattan Mussolini might say, believe me, slavery would have ended before 1865. A strategic ambition of the settlers was to keep arms from the hands of the indigenous population. So I'm not sure how we can do an end run around the white supremacist issue, particularly when, as noted, also conspicuously ignored by too many analysts, that those most likely to confront the left, excuse me, confront the right, or the blacks who vote against the right nine to one. And that brings me to your question, Paul, which is why the United States? Well, I think that has already been noted, England, the so-called mother country for some of you, uh, has similar problems with Boris Johnson violating international law by trying to uh, break out of the divorce arrangement with the European Union, the shambolic reaction to the COVID crisis, et cetera, the demagogy, the racism, et cetera. And I think that London and Washington were at the tip of the spear during the preceding epic, speaking of the Cold War. And as a result, particularly Washington found it necessary to engage more directly and profoundly in repressive measures, particularly against the left, which has yet, those effects have yet to be dissipated. At the same time, there was a a kind of contradiction because at the same time, there was a curbing of civil liberties and freedom of expression and all of the rest. There was an opening with regard to Jim Crow That is to say, eroding the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow, how the a a significant percentage of the Euro-American working class and middle class greeted this was that this was unleashing more competition for their particular positions, which then leads to these mass revolts against desegregation and equality in Little Rock in 1957, in Oxford, Mississippi in 1962, when there were deaths because of the Uh, potential entrance of one black student, James Meredith, to the University of Mississippi. It was not a sectional issue. You had similar uprisings in the Irish-American, Italian-American communities in Boston in the 1970s over school desegregation. And so then at the same time, the so-called white working class and middle class, they, from their point of view, when there was the overture to China in the 1970s, from their point of view, this allowed jobs to be exported to China, creating more of uh, competition for positions, which has now led us to this trifecta of racism and white supremacy, which we would not be able to ignore unless you want to keep more black voters at home in Milwaukee, Detroit, and Philadelphia. If that's your goal, that's the way to go, which is to ignore the white supremacy issue, and which, of course, will then redound to the detriment of all of us. But in any case, I think that we have to sort of take seriously sort of our rhetoric. The rhetoric is, oh, it's the people who make history, except when it comes to the Euro-American working class and they're all dupes of Fox News and, and Rush Limbaugh. I think that we have to look at those supporters, the 63 million strong across class lines that vote for Trump. We have to see that they are voting for Trump not least because they recognize that in order to con- to uh, conceive and develop 
this settler colonial state, it did not take daintiness and good manners to take the land away from the Native Americans and enforce slavery on the Africans. It took crudeness. It took uh, obstreperousness. It took ultimately violence. And if we try to ignore that on behalf of some sort of, I'm not sure what, I think that we're going to end up in worse trouble than we are today. Megan? Well, this is a very interesting and, and really big conversation. I guess I'll start by saying that I believe that it's probably inevitable between now and November that white working class Trump supporters, which I would say, I think it's important to note that's not the sort of like, that's not the, his, that's not the stronghold of his base, but we know that they exist and we know that they're animated in large part by racial prejudice. I don't think that between now and November, we're going to be um, replacing their meaning making apparatus with one of racial solidarity instead of uh, racial bigotry. I think that it's possible that if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee, we could start to see the tectonic plates shift a little bit because each white uh, racist who wants to build a wall to keep the immigrants out or believes that black people are running amok and burning down distant cities and believes all the lies that they're hearing. You know, each of those person, each of those people also struggles with healthcare costs. And they are also, uh, in many cases, unable to afford rent or afraid that they're not going to be able to afford their mortgage or worried about their job security or unable to pay for their children's college tuition and, or even unable to pay off their own student loan debt if they were lucky enough to go to college to begin with, and so on and so forth. And so I do believe that if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee, I don't think that we could consider it a deus ex machina. I don't think that it would have happened over the course of one election. But like I said, I do think that the tectonic plates could have begun to shift. I think we could have begun to see the potential for a new realignment that breaks out of the two-party stranglehold that we have right now, where the Republican Party is basically committed to extreme and open racism, and the Democratic Party continues to push policy that harms people of color and particularly black people, while also committing itself rhetorically to anti-racism, but not following through on those commitments. That's the stranglehold that we're in right now. And I think that if Bernie Sanders had been the nominee, we could have seen a loosening up of that. We could have started to see a new type of identification. People could have started to identify more with their class along racial lines. I would not have been, it would not have happened overnight, it, uh, but it would have been, I guess, a step down the, the road. And crucially, I think it's important that someone like Bernie Sanders never backs away from his rhetorical commitment to anti-racism either. When I was, uh, he got a lot of flack for this in 2015, for 2015, 2016, for, for not doing enough to uh, just lay, lay down the law on racism and say, I oppose racism. Honestly, I think a lot of that was uh, pretty unfair to Bernie Sanders. I, I was following his campaign very closely, and I think that the media was misrepresenting that in order to gin up controversy that didn't necessarily need to exist for their own purposes. That said, he smartly understood in the next election that he couldn't, I mean, he, that's an obstacle that he needs to figure out how to work with, right? The media, if the media is going to do that, they're going to do that. And so he needs to figure out how to uh, behave strategically in relation to that. And I think he really stepped up his his anti-racist rhetoric in 2020 um, in a way that wasn't divisive to the point that Leo was talking about. There, there are certain ways to go about acknowledging what Gerald is, is talk, correctly talking about, the need to identify white supremacy and identify racism as a major um, harm in itself and an obstacle to a harm in itself to black people and people of color and an obstacle to multiracial solidarity along, cl uh, across, along class lines. 
And Bernie Sanders, I think, did a really good job of that in 2020. One of the reasons that anti-communism was so virulent in the United States, uh, so much more uh, than uh, in Britain uh, or in Canada uh, or, or in Europe in the 1950s, was it did reflect the success of the Communist Party uh, in its popular front strategy after the rise of fascism abroad. Until then, it had run a class versus class, crude kind of line. Uh, but by turning to unifying uh, the labor movement uh, around the struggles to create industrial unions, uh, which was explicitly oriented to organizing black workers alongside white workers to break the inherent racism in the craft unionism of the AFL. That proved to be excess, success, and as we know, a great many of the people who became uh, leaders in the uh, civil rights movement were people who had been schooled uh, in the broader protests, uh, as well as in the union organizing uh, that the Communist Party engaged in in the United States through uh, the 30s and even the 40s. Um, so there was, in that sense, the beginnings of the type of politics uh, that uh, we need to have. Uh, the, uh, you know, Roy Cohen, I think Paul was absolutely right to point to that legacy. Roy Cohen became uh, uh, the mentor of Donald Trump. They had a falling out before Roy Cohen died. And one of Roy Cohen's last sentences was, Donald Trump pisses ice. Now, so for someone like Roy Cohn to say that is an indication of who we're dealing with and what we're dealing with in terms of the capacity of Trump and the people around him to ruthlessly exploit uh, uh, the lack of discipline on the left in the short run the lack of organized coherence, the divisions that developed understandably during the civil rights movement between those oriented to peaceful protest and those oriented to expressing a degree of physical resistance to the repressive apparatus, uh, which, of course, sustains more than anything else uh, uh, racial oppression in the United States. But what, this is now a matter of weeks. We are dealing here in weeks without a disciplined political organization of the type that the three of us see as necessary to address uh, the development of a coherent opposition to this racialized capitalism. We're dealing in it with a matter of weeks. And we have to think tactically. We have to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time uh, with regard to what discipline we will need in the face of the onslaught. That's, I, I mean, we, I, I, it, 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 I shouldn't be saying that as a Canadian, uh, but this is understandable, given that the fate of the world so much depends on what happens in the American empire. Um, but, you know, this needs to be addressed. 
Uh, Leo, Leo's right here that we don't have a disciplined organization that can behave in concert or even set out a program and follow it between now and November. Uh, I think that this is, so I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, which is the largest socialist group in the United States in the last half century. And I'm enormously proud of the growth that we've had and the strides that we've made. I, I see the campaigns that we're doing and they're excellent. I see the, um, you know, the political education that we're doing and it's miraculous to watch people go from essentially no political or class consciousness to, uh, you know, devoting their lives to the fight for socialism and being genuine socialist cadre. Uh, but I, but I know that we don't have what it takes right now to be able to lead some kind of popular front uh, between now and November. And, and I don't, I don't think anybody else does either. Um, we, we, sim we simply weren't able to get it. Just between now and November, Megan, it's not just about, well, maybe you're suggesting this too, but if in fact this plays out the way some people think it could play out, which is that after November 3rd, states controlled by Republicans simply don't certify the results or what they do certify is the vote that took place on the 3rd in person and won't certify the ballots that come later. So essentially a coup, essentially uh, if the Supreme Court then certifies that, uh, supports that, um, I don't see how this stops or, or is prevented uh, without a massive, massive movement in the streets uh, in response to it. I'm afraid that it won't be a disciplined movement, though, which is what Leo is talking about. I think that we can have a mass. I think that we will if this is if this happens, there will be mass street protests. I think that they can be somewhat effective on their own without leadership. I mean, we've certainly seen the Black Lives Matter movement over the summer has essentially been unplanned and undisciplined. I, I should say that there are individual leaders in individual cities, but overall on a national scale, there's there's not there, there's not a lot of coordination happening. A lot of this is very spontaneous. And I think that that would be the same in the event that Trump tries to steal the election. Um, and however, I will say that that during the Bernie Sanders campaign, DSA and four other progressive groups joined together to support Bernie Sanders. This was actually mentioned a couple times in the, I think it was, or maybe just once in the Democratic Party primary debates. In fact, uh, Bernie Sanders was accused of having a, a super PAC that supported him, which of course would be rank hypocrisy on his part were it true, but it wasn't true. It was actually five progressive organizations and, and one nurses union um, that was being referred to. So what I'm trying to say is that the Bernie Sanders campaign did at least give us a dry run for how to um, coordinate uh, in it coordinate between organizations. And I think that we're going to have to tap into that once more if if this if Trump tries to steal the election. But I, I still don't think it's going to be enough to be able to have marching orders on the streets. I think it'll be mostly spontaneous and we have to cross our fingers and hope that people have decent instincts. OK, well, uh, what I'd like to do is invite the three of you back again uh, we're, uh, and, and let's pick up the conversation about what kind of organizational form is needed and how do we get there uh, and and deal with some of the other issues of facing the movement? Uh, so if that's all right with the three of you, if I don't know if any one of you wants one final thing to say. No, that sounds good, though. I'm happy to come back. It was great to be on with you. So uh, my guests are, are have all agreed to come back. Gerald, did you agree? We'll talk. <laughs> OK. So thank you, all of you, for joining me on the Analysis.News podcast. 
And thank you for uh, listening. And don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage, because if uh, you don't donate, we can't do this. Mm-hmm.